Hello, and welcome to the FreightFind podcast, your source for all things transportation. FreightFind is brought to you by DATIQ. With the freight market changing daily, DATIQ has the most accurate rate data and forecasting analytics that help businesses stop guessing and plan for the road ahead. Find out more at DAT.com slash IQ. I'm Chris Kaplis, Chief Scientist at DAT Freight and Analytics, and today I'm joined by Kelly Abney. Now, I've known Kelly for well over a decade, and while he's currently retired, he has over 30 years of experience in retail and third-party logistics. He has previously held senior roles in transportation at Walmart, Sears, and Kmart, New Breed Logistics, XPO Logistics, and most recently, the U.S. Postal Service. We'll talk about the changing retail logistics environment, as well as challenges and opportunities for the United States Postal Service. Following my conversation with Kelly, I'll be joined by Dr. Enam Ayub to discuss the truckload market update. So let's get started. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Freight Find podcast. Good morning. Great to be here. Excellent. So, Kelly, we've talked about this, but I have to ask. Are you really retired now? This is like the third time you've done that. And are these seems like they're false starts. Are you really retired now? Well, you never say never, Chris, but I think so this time. I am uh, I think I'm off to do some uh, traveling, ultimately post-pandemic with the family and hopefully get to spend a little more time uh, in the seat of my motorcycle. Well, that's nice. Well, you should be able to spend time on your motorcycle now. That seems like a very socially distanced way to travel. Do you, Are you doing any riding now? I am. Uh, in fact, I was out uh, just yesterday. It uh, was 50-plus degrees here in uh, Bentonville, Arkansas. And so, yeah, I enjoyed uh, a little time out in the sun. Yeah, I think travel in 2021, the second half, is going to be uh, really high. I mean, everyone, there's such pent-up demand, isn't there? Oh, I, I think so. I know uh, people like me or you know, when I go out and look at Am I going to reserve uh, a rental on the coast somewhere uh, in the second half of the year? It is already looking like uh, everything's booked up. Yeah, we, my wife and I actually were celebrating our 30th wedding anniversary, and we booked something in Austin, Texas for October. And things are starting to book up already. I think everyone's knocking on wood, hoping things will, will open up. But let me change the topic. Right. Let's talk about why you're really here. Um you spent the lion's share of your career in retail logistics at Walmart, a little bit at Sears, Kmart, a little bit of uh, Payless Cashway. Um, so let me ask a question about that because you've seen it over a longer period of time. How do you see that retail logistics space changing over the last, say, 10, 20 years? Well, I think as I look back on my career, uh, Chris, you know, um, there has been uh, a lot of new or, or continued adoption of uh, technology, you know, TMS, uh, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly when I was at Walmart, they were an early adopter and, um, the utilization of software and its effectiveness and uh, ability to run your business, so to speak, or help you run your businesses is really evolved over the last several decades. Yeah. Do you see, do you see that reducing the amount of people needed to run the operations or is it allowing people just to do more proactive things? I, I think it, um, uh, helps balance out um, where you utilize your workforce more than it does eliminate uh, the need for people, so to speak, that uh, uh, we can now allocate uh, uh, a number of hours in the day, so to speak, to a lot more important things like service and other things that heretofore were are used in a lot more manual, you know, uh, 
uh, big chief tablet kind of operation that no longer has to be done. <laughs> yeah, it seems like um, a lot of te- a lot of transportation departments are more like firemen. They're moving from crisis to crisis, but technology is enabling some people to step back and maybe think a little more strategically and yeah. avoid some of those fires. Yeah. Um, so wh- how do you think it will continue to evolve post-pandemic? Do you think any big changes? Because there have been obviously a big shift to e-commerce. Um, and that's changing the logistics. How do you think this will change going forward? Well, I think clearly we've all had a crash course uh, in uh, home delivery and e-commerce and uh, over the last uh, year. And I think um, that anyone uh, from a company standpoint who might have been uh, still wondering about the value of multi-channel and whether or not, uh, uh, you know, Direct home delivery was going to cannibalize their their regular business, or if uh, you know, kind of direct consumer was here to stay is is surely taking a different position at this point, particularly in commodities and in areas that uh, heretofore weren't really looked at seriously, like you know, home grocery delivery. Yeah, grocery was one of the things that people said, oh, they'll never buy that online because people want to pick out their own vegetables and meats. But it seems Walmart especially has really pivoted well into that and having that variety of ways that product can be delivered, pick up in the store, pick up curbside, delivered. Um, Have you seen other large retailers, brick and mortar retailers adjusting to this? Do you think they'll all follow that or is there a a variety? Uh, I I think they all will have to adjust, those that want to continue to be successful in the future. And I, I think many times where a retailer found themselves at kind of these sea change points along the way, determine how quickly they can respond and how they respond. Uh, if you had a large infrastructure you were working on and you just needed to build it out, expand it, and and really put it into high gear, obviously you've had an advantage during this period. If you were not in that good a position, then you've had to rely on whether it's 3PLs or, or other ways to kind of catch up. And so um, I think I think it's uh, – also brought some new competitors. Everybody's a retailer, hmm. to speak now. Right. Uh, and so um, the competitive landscape, I think, is forever yeah. changed. Yeah. Then when you were you were at Walmart from like 2002 to 2011-ish, right? Right in that yeah. 10-year time frame. Uh-huh. Was last mile even mentioned? I Was that a thing back for you guys back uh, then? You know, not really, Chris. I mean, obviously, at, at that point, uh Walmart was still trying to, uh, as most retailers were, determine what position uh, e-commerce, final mile, uh, direct home delivery, those kind of things were going to play. Was it going to be a completely separate business or was it something that they were going to leverage with the rest of the supply chain? And so uh, I'd have to say it was a back burner kind of uh, item at that point that Everyone talked about, but there was re- relatively little action. You know, that's you raise a really good point, Kelly. Um, there was such a struggle in how you treat e-commerce. Is it is it its own silo? Do you leverage existing brick and mortar on the same channel? It seems like companies have gone back and forth. Um, have you seen a dominant way of doing it emerge, or do you still see companies doing a little bit of both? Some having it siloed, some having it centralized. What, uh, what have I you think seen? More and more, I've seen. Um, it become an integrated part of the overall logistics yeah. solution for companies, particularly larger ones. Simply, right. I think, first of all, the the investment 
Uh, secondly, the ability to use uh, one pile of inventory, I think, over time, including that inventory that's in, in store locations for, for brick-and-mortar retailers, has become uh, a clear advantage over trying to manage two large, complex businesses that um, uh, and, and I really think you miss out on a lot of the potential leverage that you have um, in a number of different ways if, if you look at it as two separate businesses. Yeah, but it's so complicated, isn't it? Because that inventory now, it's, uh, you know, could be sold in so many different channels. And, and so you need a really sophisticated inventory management and tracking system even at the stores now, which is notoriously a hard thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And I think, uh, obviously, those companies that are able to uh, differentiate and uh, take advantage of that capability are going to be the ones that, that do the best in the future. Uh, I don't discount, yeah. uh, though, um, uh, those companies that have over time shifted, uh, you know, have less brick-and-mortar stores, which is, which is happening to a lot of retailers but have right. been able to survive by shifting a lot of their business to uh, the online platforms. And by doing that, have been uh, able to stick around a little bit longer and probably in that case, uh, look at their supply chain and, and how they design it to be the most effective quite a bit differently than they would have 10 or 20 years Yeah, ago. it seems like I was just reading that malls now are kind of flipping to be a micro-fulfillment centers. So they're still in the retail space because their locations are really close to consumers, obviously, but they're almost turning in many cases to dark stores. Let me, so after Walmart, uh, you went over to New Breed Logistics, which was then acquired by XPO. Um, so how was that shift going from uh, a shipper, a large retailer, to now to a 3PL? Where you weren't, you were now kind of on the, uh, you you weren't the customer anymore. So how how did that uh, change? Well, I, I think the biggest uh, differences are that you know you have many diverse customers uh, with many different business objectives across multiple industry verticals, um, and um, so you look at your business instead of really, you know, just kind of uh, heavily focused on a specific type of model to many, many different models. Uh, and I would say that's number one. And then secondly, um, you're in a contractual, usually from a relative standpoint, short period of time. Um, and so the decisions and the way that you look at the business, uh, I think it really forces you to show up every day trying with your, with your A game, so to speak to ensure that uh, when the contract renewal is up, that uh, they're not thinking of anyone else but you. Yeah, but it's got to be tough because each of your customers, you obviously had multiple customers across different industries, had different uh, expectations of service, expectations of cost, and those kind of things. Did you find it easy or hard to make those shifts between different customers? Um, I I think uh, it was at times could be difficult um, because many times uh, individual customers shifted the, I'll call it the the finish line on us um, from from year to year, from season to season. Shocked and amazed about that, Kelly, that a customer changed their mind. (laughs) I'm shocked. (laughs) Yeah, I I think overall, though, uh, the way that, um, you know, we approached most businesses were that uh, you design your infrastructure and your ability to perform based upon 
what you think is is the most complex uh, solution that uh, you may face. And then um, if the client doesn't require that level of skill or complexity, uh, then you're in good shape and you don't get caught with uh, someone asking for a service that you're unable to provide. Makes sense. Well, let me talk about your most recent venture. I think this is after your second retirement. You came back and you uh, joined the Postal Service. Uh-huh. And as we all know, anyone on this podcast knows, the U.S. Postal Service is massive. Um, statistics I saw is an annual buy of $5.6 billion in surface transportation. But I think it's actually that number's a little low, isn't it? So what was it like going to work for the Postal Service? Well, you know, one thing that really, uh, I'll say, got me out of retirement, so to speak, to take a look at this, uh, Chris, was the the solution, the problem, if you want to call it the challenge with the Postal Service is, you know, delivering to, um, I think, 160 million addresses every day, uh, six or seven days a week on a very um, complex um, uh, schedule. And... Um, if you if you think about it for a minute, every day I can walk out to my mailbox and, you know, I'm one of hundreds of millions of potential starting points for that package. Uh, and any day I can I can be shipping that to hundreds of millions of other destinations. And of course, there are millions of people doing that. So, right. all of the, you know, you do do the iterative math there of the potential outcomes and then try to design a solution for that that is that is cost effective that is uh, going to meet very high service standards and it actually is I think the most complex supply chain that I have ever had the pleasure of uh, working with. Now, is it just the scale? Because what you mentioned is uh, you know millions of of origin points, a um, lot of capacity, lot huge network. Um, is it just a scale or are there other factors or things about the USPS that make it more complex? Um, I think a couple of things. Uh, of course, the different products um, are have different service standards, which have to always be um, um, you know, entertained. And it can be, of course, a, a letter. It can be a parcel. It can be a package. It can be a lot of different things that require different material handling channels that right. uh, to meet to meet your service standards. So it's it's a lot more than just girth, but girth still plays a, a very large role. Yeah, and, and it seems like, uh, you know, with email, that, that gutted a lot of the traffic that usually go through the Postal Service with letters being replaced by email. But it seems like the e-commerce wave, especially during the pandemic, would almost more than offset that. Is that is that something that USPS, I know they're doing some last mile for Amazon now, is that something that you see as a growth area for the Postal Service? Uh, absolutely. And, and you're right. Obviously, the standard, if you want to call it uh, letter, mail, et cetera, is something that uh, has greatly diminished over the last few years, and particularly uh, probably in the last five years uh, due to email. But parcel shipments and the explosion of e-commerce, uh, particularly as we saw just this last holiday season, uh, with everybody at home with the pandemic, um, uh, has opened up a whole nother um, look at the supply chain. One of the things that I was doing there was taking into consideration that this model has probably changed forever. And 
what kind of transportation solutions are going to be uh, better suited to look at the new model. Yeah, because I would imagine the mix historically of uh, letters versus uh, packages was very heavy on letters. But now that's probably, I would assume, that's changing dramatically. So the, the processing centers, the sorting centers, the vehicles will all have to change slightly. Is that, uh, is that something you see as, as happening? Absolutely. And, um, you know, that affects, as you said, um, hundreds of different processing centers, um, a lot of uh, staffing and manpower requirements, as well as that, you know, uh, final mile activity uh, when a, a route carrier now has their uh, vehicle, you know, half full or three quarters full or, or overly full of packages. It's, it's a different uh, delivery model than when uh, they had baskets of, uh, of just letters in their cars. Yeah, I, I grew up in the suburbs, right? And I still remember the little Jeep coming along with letters and they never left their vehicle. Right. They just open the mailbox, right. shove stuff in, as opposed to the UPS will always deliver. So is is that a challenge? I've actually never seen a postal service, someone actually come and deliver a package to the door. Is that is that a normal process now? Well, it's it, it is done. It's uh, obviously from an efficiency standpoint, the postal service would always prefer to be able to have a vehicle sized appropriately to make deliveries to uh, a mailbox or to a parcel slot. Uh, but, you know, you get. The, and, and that's still probably the primary mode of, of operation, but particularly in cities uh, and mm-hmm. then um, uh, now more and more into the urban areas, that isn't going to be probably what, what the predominant method of delivery is. And so uh, they continue to look at, at um, how to better, I'll say, outfit that delivery fleet to uh, both um, carry more and to be more right. efficient in the way that it's loaded and, and unloaded at destination. Sure. I mean, there's so many, as you think through, that has such a huge ripple effect on a system that was built to be optimally, you know, very efficient for letters. And now it's having to make that change. So um, I'm mm-hmm. sure you had your hands full and you were there as a six month contract. Is that right? That That's correct. Yeah, it was uh, really um, uh, to take a look at the... Um, kind of all this wave of change and um, uh, determine, you know, what kind of things should uh, uh, we be looking at as we plan for that evolution going forward. And uh, very, very interesting work, great group of people. It was uh, uh, really an enjoyable six months. So you were brought in by your former CEO from New Breed, uh, uh, Louis DeJoy, um, after he was appointed the Postmaster General in, in the summer of 2020. How was it working for someone First, and for for profit, and then working for it in, in a government function. Was it was it different? Did you see different management styles, different cultures? What 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 was the changes? What well, were the differences? I, yeah, I think um, at his heart, Postmaster DeJoy is is a you know a very uh, smart logistician that uh, uh, looked at this problem like I did, and I think our history and working together and, and ability to quickly communicate and talk about you know how do we want to uh, look at the future of the post office from a supply chain standpoint is something that that um, uh, was as it always has been. I'll put it that way. Now, clearly, when you are the, the CEO of a private company that you actually built yourself, 
uh, you have the ability to make decisions and move at a speed that is quite different than when you are a public servant and working for the federal government. So I think, um, plus clearly, you know, New Breed, I think at its peak was maybe just under a billion dollars of, um, uh, in size and, you know, the post office, uh, as many, many, many times larger. Yeah, I would imagine that's something you just got to get used to because you don't have the autonomy or the ability to just pivot on a dime because there are many masters, right? The Congress is kind of has a lot of, uh, there are a lot of restrictions placed on the Postal Service, whether they're political or union or otherwise. Did you find it a challenge having to navigate through those or were you mainly involved at the strategic level where you did not have to get concerned with those aspects? uh I took the point of view that um, I was going to try to uh, design and recommend uh, a process that um, I thought was the best to make the the Postal Service even more service sensitive and yet uh, meet its mandate to hopefully become more and more efficient and and self-funding. I didn't worry a lot, quite frankly, Chris, about about things and, and their approval channels. Uh, because I knew I wasn't going to be there probably long enough to carry all of those through to the finish line. But clearly, uh, almost any yeah. change that you make, as you indicated, particularly if it requires funding and, and those type of things has to go through or price changes or any of that goes through the PRC and then ultimately uh, through the uh, um, Congress to get to get approved. Yeah. Um so what do you see are the biggest hurdles or the challenges that the Postal Service faces now going forward as it post-pandemic even, as it continues to, to Well, I, I think that, um, you know, they're, they are making a number of, um, I'll call it evolutionary type um, IT changes and, and systems changes to become more and more um, efficient based upon technology. And I think investments there and getting those in place and, and utilizing them are, are going to be, uh, as, as with most, I'll call it multi-billion dollar companies, a, uh, a challenge. I think uh, just, mm-hmm. again, um, as we've heard from whether it's Amazon or Walmart or others, labor uh, is always going to be a, a challenge in this environment, making sure that you've got enough people um, available to, to do um the work that you need to do. Um, I think the um, they face the same um, critical issues that many different businesses do concerning what portion of the work is going to be done remotely. And, and clearly, you can't sort mail remotely, but right. a lot of the other regional functions are along with, you know, just continuing uh, uh, contingency planning and, and working on things that... Uh, hopefully will continue to make uh, the Postal Service competitive in uh, arenas outside of, of just delivering mail. Right, right. Because it seems like one of the challenges any of these companies that you mentioned is doing any kind of retail or delivery is the flexibility, because it's the variability of this is it can be tremendous. Um, and that's one challenge that I know the Postal Service will always have. Um, what about for the last mile delivery of some other retailers i know um post service does some for amazon does it also do it for other ones like walmart or other shopify customers uh, we do our, our, our usps does have other uh customers that um and, and market that yeah. and of course that is a very 
significant, I think, growth area potentially for the postal service. Right. Because you are, you know, um, uh, I'll say required to go to every uh, address every day. So we're there anyway, so right. to speak. So uh, clearly that is a model that um, uh, is something that, that I think, again, is, is a growth vehicle for them. But do you see a lot of the uh, retailers grabbing that middle mile and giving it to you for the last mile? For you being USPS, do you see a lot of zone skipping for that? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's like most things, Chris, in, in that it's you've got to really be, or I'll say pay attention to the details, in that if um, you are uh, adding lots of volume to uh, what I would call um, unprofitable destinations. And by unprofitable, I mean just hard to service, like you know, all of right, the right. final mile deliveries to uh, South Dakota are, are things that you're going to pay a very big premium for uh, if you are using a standard service, you know, a FedEx, a UPS, uh, other type mm-hmm. of rate-based um, uh, delivery services. At the Postal Service, um, again, they're going there anywhere. That's the advantage, but typically... Um, again, at pro- the pricing has got to be set in a way that makes sense for the Postal Service. And again, then we're back into, right. well, how do we utilize that and get that through Congress and do things that, that make that possible? And you don't want to get all the, uh, I'm call them dog lanes, but the, the bad freight like that. You want to also get some of the ones that are more you're more efficient on as well. That's exactly it. That's it. And, and it's one of those things where um, uh, you've, um, you hope that by being able to provide that very efficient final mile that they're able to leverage that then and get the rest of that business as well. Uh, and when you blend it all together, you're competitive. Makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, so let's uh, switch to the last topic, which is the pandemic. We have to talk about the pandemic. Um, it's obviously had big impact on all aspects of life, business, and the economy. What do you think are the most dramatic changes that you've seen in this industry during the pandemic? Well, I, I clearly the final mile activity and its explosion across multitudes of different commodities is something that, um, you know, probably we all were strategically talking about for many years, but suddenly realized in a matter of months. Um, and so I think yeah. uh, as we originally spoke uh, to this earlier today, that, that an ability to, to make uh, kind of use of that change within your own business is something that's going to be uh, critical for retailers to be, you know, successful in the next decade and, and forward. I, I think labor shortages uh, caused by the pandemic uh, exacerbated the challenge that uh, I know um, yeah. we felt at the Postal Service, but I know many other retailers and other businesses felt felt as well. So. Uh, how does that play or bounce against particularly, you know, automation or other uh, kind of system related enhancements that that give you the opportunity to take some of that, you know, uh, uh, demand for labor away in the future? And um, I think maybe one more thing I would say is that that if you look at, you know, one of the things that I know we worked on, if I go back all the way to my Walmart years was contingency and emergency Mm -hmm. planning. And um, I think what Uh we saw uh, were those companies that had maybe not said 
you know, what do we do if we have a global pandemic? But it looked at, you know, what do we do if we have very big supply chain interruptions for a number of different reasons? How would we respond to that? Um, got to put those practices into play. And, and those that were caught flat-footed found themselves at a severe disadvantage. And, and of course, many small businesses, uh, that probably cost them the, their livelihoods, so to speak. So, um, yeah, a lot of change. No, that's that's interesting. No, I was talking to one trucking company, and they uh, in the fall of 2019, they went through an active shooter drill because they said, okay, let's go through this and see if, they, if some disaster happened. And they picked that one just, you know, as one they were going to work through. And they worked through it and everything. But then, of course, the pandemic hit, and they found that they were better prepared to handle that crisis because they had already worked through the mechanics of handling a crisis. So it, it isn't that you have to plan and be ready for each individual event that might happen, but just the exercise of it, like you were saying, it's like working that muscle and being able to be agile, flexible, have the communication. So it seems like practicing some kind of contingency pays benefits no matter what the contingency is. Yeah, that's, I think that's absolutely true. And, and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, is something that uh, I know in a couple of my stops along the way, you know, I, as the guy who had to do a lot of practicing, you know, I always, you know, sit back and say, well, boy, this isn't the thing that I enjoy doing the most, but boy, when you need it, you're glad you did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what about silver linings? Do you see any silver linings or personal lessons that you learned from the pandemic that you think will continue and translate into post pandemic times? You know, one of the things, a couple of things that I believe, Chris, that that um, were reinforced for me were, first of all, I think the need to continuously innovate and to look at mm. how do I do things better? Uh, because uh, a lot of different, I'll call them opportunities occurred with the, the pandemic. And if you had a, a company culture that was used to uh, you know, kind of stretching the envelope, always looking for a better way, new ideas, new technology. I think you were better prepared. Um, and then finally, uh, the continued value of um, what I would call uh, leadership in a crisis. Mm. Companies that had strong core values and leadership, uh, particularly in the executive levels, uh, were much better, I think, served uh, as all of this unfolded us around us and, and we're yeah. better able to keep the troops all pointed in the, the kind of the same direction as, as it seemed like sometimes the, you know, the world was rolling up around us. Yeah. I've talked to more um, executives and they said, you know, decisions were made so much faster. You didn't have the luxury of sending something out and getting everyone approval. Decisions were made in the meetings. And so the question is, will that stick, that speed, that agility of making decisions, or will we default back to slower decision-making? It'll be interesting to see how that unfolds. It will. It will. I really believe that it's uh, uh, once those types of changes are made, um, it is very difficult uh, in some respects to, to go back. And although there may be a little more, uh, I'll call it, due diligence done along the way, I think uh, most um, uh, executives will view this as a, uh, you know, I'm not going to be 100% right all the time, but if I'm 80% right and I get there a lot faster, I'm probably yeah. better off. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Well, thanks, Kelly. I really enjoyed talking with you today. 
Hey, thank you, Chris. It was my pleasure. Okay, so everyone stay tuned for the Truckload Market Update with Dr. Enam Eub. Let's take a brief pause to talk about the FMIC Pulse Signal Report from DAT. Formerly part of Chainalytics, the Freight Market Intelligence Consortium, or FMIC, is now part of DAT Freight and Analytics. FMIC Pulse members receive monthly reports based on their subscription, which includes DATIQ's proprietary forecasting approach to predicting the future of North American truckload markets. Are rates dropping? Is the market getting tighter? How should I approach next year's transportation budget? All of these questions and more are answered in the FMIC Pulse Signal Report. Visit DAT.com slash Pulse Signal and fill out the form for a free limited view of the report. And become a member of FMIC to receive unlimited access. All right, let's get back to it. Welcome to the Over the Road Truckload Market Update for January 28, 2021. In today's market update, we will discuss the market changes in the last two weeks. Let's start with dry van. Active rates are up 1%, spot rates down 6%, replacement rate is positive 9%. This means that the new contract rates are about 9% above the rates being replaced. On the temp control side, active rates are down half a percent, spot rates down 5%, and replacement rates are positive 5%. Finally, on the intermodal side, active rates are up half a percent, spot rates down 1%, and replacement rate is positive 2%. So, Enam, it's kind of, we're seeing a continuing trend. So, it seems like the spot rates are starting to taper off a little bit, um, but the replacement rates are still pretty high, you know, 5%, 9%. Why do you think that is? I think the replacement rates are an indication of the rates that are actually starting to move in a contract uh, setting, which in, in, in fact, were actually procured month or two months ago so that's that, that those are that, that's the implication of uh, a, a lag that we are seeing in, in in a time sense it's a lag but in reality that's the the actual loads that are currently starting to move yeah it takes a while for a, a rate to move from a bid into a routing guide and then show up in actual um, shipments being moved but I, I noticed that the active rates uh, increased slightly or st- it really didn't move too much but the replacement weight rates were fairly high why do you think the active rates didn't raise? as much as the replacement rates. Yeah, I think we are we are getting close to that inflection point for the uh, active rates. So the, we know that the spot rates are starting to drop or actually been drop, dropping, you know, since like November. And uh, so active rates now we would see going up and down a little bit, you know, one week up, one week down maybe as they're hitting the inflection point. And I would expect if the spot rates continue to drop this way, we would start seeing... Uh, the active rates flattening 
in the coming month, in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, I guess you can see it as almost three different uh, time lags or time zones, right? Spot rates are the most uh, active, right? They'll, they'll, they'll fluctuate a lot. Replacement rates have a longer lag. And then when replacement rates go into the active contracts, it's not like all the rates are being um, changed, right? It's just a small percentage. So that's why it's almost a muted effect for those active rates. But uh, what do you think all these trends together indicate for what we expect to see in Q1? What are your thoughts? I would say Q1 will be interesting. I think I would expect by end of Q1 or uh, early Q2, the way we are seeing uh, for you know for it to start to, to flatten out further uh, what will be interesting is uh, also to watch what's happening what would happen to the spot rates uh, if if would you know by by q2 would it start picking back up for seasonal reasons or would it continue down yeah it's it's going to be interesting to see i don't think the economies are going to open up as much as some people thought. So that would put uh, not as much pressure on the demand side. Um, supply side still seems a little tight with the driver schools still kind of restricted. But I don't know, all, all signals are indicating that it's probably going to be, uh, you know, we're a loosening of the market as we go forward. Does that make sense? Exactly. All right. Well, I guess that concludes this week's Truckload Market Update. Thank you. Well, that wraps up this episode of The Freight Fine. The Freight Find podcast is hosted by Dr. Inam Ayub and myself, Chris Kaplis, and is produced and edited by DATIQ. For more information or to hear previous episodes, please visit our website at dat.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to The Freight Find wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, be sure to give us a review. As always, if you have any feedback or questions about what you've heard on The Freight Find or suggestions for what you'd like to hear in the future, send an email to me at chris.caplis at dat.com. Finally, from all of us at The Freight Find, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something new.